Go ahead and open your Bibles up to 2 Samuel, chapter 21. Be reading verses 15 through 22 this morning. 2 Samuel, chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. You'll already notice from last week I wanted to take this text and chapter 23 together. That didn't happen, so... We're going to be just looking at this text right now as we look at the again war. First, Second Samuel, excuse me, chapter 21, starting in verse 15. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. Then... Ishbibanab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel." Now it happened afterward that there was a battle again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai, the Hushethite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Gerar Oregim, the Bethlehemite, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again there was war at Gath. There was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to this our Lord, and thank Him for His Word. Gracious Father, Lord, we do not gather to simply hear a person speaking to people. We gather to hear from Your Word. We acknowledge together our need for Your Spirit to be at work here mightily among us. Lord, if Your Spirit is not poured out, if Your Spirit does not fill, if He does not open the ears or the hearts of us here, if He does not help us to understand, if He does not help us to apply, then we will learn nothing of value and will not respond in a way that honors You. So we're dependent children this morning, and we pray this prayer expectantly, knowing You are pleased to answer, to pour out Your Spirit upon us, and to help us, Your servants, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me start off by saying this is the biggest gap I think I've seen in a middle row. Johnny, man, did you not shower yesterday something, bud? What's going on, man? All by somebody go help my brother out and invite him over. That's a huge, sorry, that was ADD immediately right off the bat. All right. As we read today, I hope you caught the theme this week over and over again. 2 Samuel chapter 21, you see there in verse 15 right off the bat, Right? The Philistines were at war again with Israel. Then we read down in verse 18, there was again a battle. Verse 19, again, there was a war. Verse 20, yet again, 
there was a war. Four times. And that that repetitive refrain throughout the passage is, again, war. Again, war. Again, war. In fact, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I would argue that the big idea of this passage is simply this. David is ending. War is not. David is ending. War is not. Hopefully next week we'll, we'll see this a little bit more, how this prepares us for what we find in the parallel passage at the end of chapter 23. Again, we're not going to get there this morning. We're going to focus our attention on this passage and consider how it depicts that David is ending, but war is not. David, as we see from the outset of this battle in verse 15, grew weary in the midst of battle. Our text says, grew faint. That's the first thing we want to notice here is that David grew weary in the midst of battle. After that, David's told to take a seat. Turn in your jersey, kid, and you're done. David grew faint in the midst of a fight. And by the way, it's in the midst of a fight with a less than Goliath. Ishbi Banab is his name. Apparently, seeing David's faintness, his weariness, his vulnerability, he makes his move to slay the king of Israel. And as I noted a moment ago, it's, it's important to recognize this man, though a giant, is no Goliath. That's communicated to us by the size of his spear. Large as it was, it was not Goliath's spear. In fact, it was about half the weight of Goliath's spear. Apparently, not quite the stature of Goliath, yet David was no longer in a position to slay or defend himself against such a man. Abishai, Joab's brother, comes to his aid. He intervenes and he saves David's life. And then after the battle, David is sidelined. David's men will not let him fight anymore, lest, as they say in verse 17, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And right out of the gate, the scriptures challenge us with something that I think we need to hear. They challenge our view of the world. This biblical worldview contradicts the normal way we see things. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is I think it's fair to say that you and I, we tend to accept aging as normal. We do. We tend to accept aging as a normal thing. Now, I know many of you are looking at me and saying, tread very carefully here, and I appreciate those looks. Um, But it's important that we understand this. We tend to think as aging and death, when we are confronted by it, as normal. As if... That's just the way things are, and that's the way things are supposed to be. But that's not actually biblical. The the Bible clearly teaches that vitality, vigor, and the proper functioning of all our faculties is supposed to remain. Aging, if I can put it this way, is not good. Follow me here. Aging is only normal... In a fallen world. The physical decline of our bodies is not by design. Thought you might like that, Bob. Amen. Physical decline of our bodies is not by design. And the reality is there are several key texts that actually help us understand 
this biblical worldview that challenges the way we tend to see things. For instance, as you turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, we see it first declared in the scriptures. This is part of the curse declared by the Lord to Adam because of his sin, because of his transgression. And look what it says. It ends this way. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This is the curse that causes us to return to dust. We're taken from dust, created in the image and likeness of God. We're endowed with life by the breath of God, the work of the Spirit and the first human being. And then there's this movement from that first position back to dust. And it is an aspect of the curse itself. It is an outworking of the consequence of sin. And so, friend, every time you look in the mirror and you're like, or every time you get out of bed and you hear things crack, the Lord is graciously reminding you that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Instead, we live in a broken world that desperately needs to be healed. In fact, Genesis 5 actually continues to tell this story. In Genesis 5, you know what that is, right? It's the reason in that genealogy there, we read over and over and over again, and he died, and he died, and he died, and, spoiler alert, he died. See, we're not just reading a genealogy, we're reading about the decline of those individuals who, by the way, lived much longer than we do, and yet, they still died. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, we read, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. You know what that's in the context of? The coming curse, the flood. It's Genesis 6, when the earth was full of violence. The Bible clearly teaches that aging or the process of returning to the dust is not normal, not good. And as we think biblically, we should not conceive of it as such. Instead, we should recognize that part of the prayer, come Lord Jesus, is for the end of that aging process. We see this Taught many ways in scripture. In fact, it's funny. One of my daughter's favorite questions to ask is, Daddy, when, when Jesus returns, am I still going to be a kid? <laughs> is he going to make me a grown-up? You ever thought about that? Don't kids ask the best questions, right? They don't teach you that in seminary. The reality is, you'll be the perfect age. And you'll never have to worry about aging ever again. You looking forward to that? Amen. I know. Me too. So there, this is also taught through counterexamples, by the way. Uh, that is, people who didn't age. There are lots of them in Scripture. Um, or there's not many of them in Scripture, but there's a few that I want to mention. Genesis chapter 5, verse 23, we know this one, right? So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. By the way, in that context, 365 was still young and spry, <laughs> He hadn't quite crested the hill yet, and the Lord took him. Picture of not actually experiencing that decline toward dust. Or you might recall this text in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7, about our guy Moses. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. 
120 years old. I mean, how many of us no longer see as well as we used to? Anybody? (laughs) You didn't have to raise hands, but thank you. Moses was 120 years old and his eye was not dim, nor his vigor diminished. See, my favorite example of this actually comes from Joshua chapter 14. You guys are going to like this. Joshua 14, verses 10 through 12. And there's a reason this is my favorite. In this context, Caleb is securing the inheritance of Judah, David's tribe. They are the the first to receive the tribute of the inheritance. And it starts out with Caleb coming to Joshua saying, Hey, remember what the Lord said. I I get dibs here. And then he says this. He's either telling the truth here or he's really cocky. I think he's telling the truth. He says, Here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. That is, as as a spy into the promised land. Remember, he and Joshua were the two faithful spies who spied out the land. Caleb saying, 40 years later, I'm just as strong now as I was then, 85 years old. He goes on. Now therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, giants by the way. And that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. You know what Caleb does now? He goes and he kicks some giants' butts. Not giant butts, but giants' behinds. Sorry about that. Family Sunday, everyone. So through positive examples, we learn that growing old, weary, weak, and blind is only normal in a fallen world. Therefore, it's always a reminder that things are not how they are supposed to be. But I want to look at one more note before we move on, and it's this. The Old Testament often uses the physical to communicate some spiritual reality. We've seen this, haven't we? The Old Testament often uses the realm of the physical in order to tell us something, to communicate to us something about the spiritual reality. For instance, unlike Moses, who at 120 years old had undiminished eyes and uh, was, was full of vitality and vigor, Eli's eyesight, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, had begun to grow dim that he could not see. And part of what's being communicated to us in both of those counts is not just the physical. right? Moses was the man of God who dwelled in his presence in such a way that even as he entered into death, his eye was undimmed. Eli, on the other hand, was a wicked priest with wicked sons. So it wasn't just his physical eyesight that was dimming, but it depicts for the reader that his spiritual eyesight was growing very dim. I could give other examples, but I think that will suffice. All of this to say that David growing faint is not simply the inevitable result of biological processes. Even though that's how we tend to read it, right? We see David grow faint. We think, well, David's old. That makes sense. He's over 80 at this point. He probably needs to take a breather, go sit down. He's lived a long, hard life. But that's not the point the author's conveying to us. Him growing weary actually depicts what we've already seen from chapter 11 onward. That there's been this spiritual decline. See, David at the end of his life is going to appear impotent. His final words to his son are actually questionable in their wisdom. David's growing weary isn't the inevitable outcome of being human. 
It's another reminder that in this point in history, there is still no rest in the land. I want us to see the connection here between David's weariness and the fact that there's no weariness in war. There's none whatsoever. In fact, if we could personify war for just a moment, war is not growing faint in this text, is it? War is not coming to an end. Death is personified in the Bible as our great enemy, the last enemy. And at this point, it still has dominion. David is ending, according to our passage, war is not. And and here's the point of the repetition of there was war again and again war and again war. It's this. The land has no rest from war. Remember, guys, you have to read everything in a biblical frame. When we read texts like there's war again and war again and war again, we recognize that shouldn't be there. That shouldn't be happening in God's land. That's indicative of a tremendous problem. And there are so many things, little things, the Bible says that communicate a really important point. For instance, there's, there's no rest in the land. Is not just, well, here we go, seems like it's the Philistines again. No, there's no rest in the land is indicative of curse, not blessing. There, there's no rest in the land. If, we, if we're reading this with a biblical framework in mind, the biblical theology, the, the, the story of the Bible is one story, all interconnected with one another. We know that there's no rest in the land, that war in the land is indicative of a curse, not a blessing. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 26. Remember we talked about the two mountains, the mountain of cursing, the mountain of blessing. This is the mountain of blessing, the blessing of the Lord. If Israel keeps its covenant, this is what he says. The Lord says, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. Does that sound like 2 Samuel 21 to you? God's presence and blessing means there will be rest in the land. So the lack of rest is indicative of the lack of presence and blessing. In fact, in the book of Joshua, this is just so crystal clear. As we read three important points in the book of Joshua, and there was rest in the land. Three times, it's a refrain in Joshua. Once when Joshua finished his campaign, right before the list of the kings that Moses and Joshua defeated, following by the giving of the inheritance, right at this critical point, Joshua's just waged his campaign. It ends with this in chapter 11, verse 23. Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, Then the land rested from war. So when we get to Samuel after reading Joshua and we see war again, war again, war again. Man, that's that's just not where we want to be. The second instance is Joshua with Caleb. You think there's any connection here? Let Let me see if we can look and see this. Caleb did not grow weary at 85 years old. Still had the strength he had in his 40s to defeat giants. And after he makes that statement, a confession of faith in the Lord, that the battle belongs to him, he says this in Joshua 14, 12. He said again, It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh as an inheritance. 
Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kirjoth Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. The last one is, is right at the end of the book, Joshua chapter 21. Before it moves into those who were settling east of the Jordan, heading home, we read the summary of the campaign and the giving off of the land. In Joshua 21, it says, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. Enough evidence for you? So so what's the promise of Joshua? The promise is rest, not war. So war again, war again, and war again is counter-promise. David's growing weary. War is not. And that's a problem. See, this whole idea actually becomes a huge part of the messianic promise as well. And as I, in Isaiah 2, I won't read the whole passage there, but, but do that on your free time. Isaiah 2 depicts a, a small hill becoming a great mountain. And in that passage, it's referring specifically to the Lord and His anointed. And look what it says in Isaiah 2.4. It says, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Most of us, I think, are pretty familiar with that word picture there, right? When does somebody beat their sword into a plowshare? When they're not afraid of enemies anymore, right? Let me ask you, any of you carry? Don't raise your hand, please. We're filming this. When would you turn in your weapons? When there's no need to defend your family anymore, right? When the weapon of war turned into an implement of production, when does that happen? When there's rest in the land, See, see, there is a day when we will have no fear for good reason because there's an everlasting rest coming to the land. A real and abiding rest. So, so now, now that we have the proper biblical lens, we read our passage in 2 Samuel. And what do we find? War, 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 and more war. It's the antithesis of rest in the land. It's the indicator that the promised blessing of the covenant is not functioning. At least not in its fullness. We read this repetition, we get this great picture. David is dying and there's war again. Yet for the people of God, there is always, always, always hope depicted and declared. We find that actually in our passage here as well. We find that the land still has hope. The land still has hope. We're going to see that hope communicated in three ways in this passage. Number one. The first is Goliath the Gittite is mentioned. Verse 19. Everybody knows Goliath, right? Goliath the Gittite communicates hope. You can't think of Goliath without thinking of 1 Samuel 17, right? Even if you knew nothing else, if I say Goliath, most of you would think of little David conquering the big giant. You might even think of him doing it with a sling and a stone, without a sword or spear in hand. 
He was the Lord's chosen man for the task, and he trusted his God. Isn't that what the passage clearly teaches us? In fact, Samuel as a whole teaches that message over and over and over again. If the Lord is in it, then the people are victorious, period. It doesn't matter if there are 300,000 or if there's one. So, So just this mention of Goliath provides a note of hope in the passage that records David being sidelined and used the refrain, there's war again. It serves to remind God's people that it's not David, but the Lord whom the battle belongs to. So just that mention, the author's bringing us back to the Lord delivering his people. Goliath the Gittite communicates hope. Second, I want you to notice that the passage ends on a hopeful note as well. The passage ends on a very hopeful note in verse 22. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So we hear war again, war again, but what also do we read? Victory, 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 victory. These giants fell by the hands of David and his men. It's a reminder of the Lord being with his people, of his willingness and his ability to save. Not by just the hands of David, by the way, but by the hands of others. So two things communicate hope so far. Goliath the Gittite communicates hope. The passage ends on a very hopeful note of victory. But third, and most importantly, the mention of the lamp of Israel in verse 17. Did that strike you as you're reading it this week? Mention of the lamp in verse 17. The text says, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. This word is in reference to the lamp, as we know, in the central sanctuary, right? As it's described in Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. And if you read that text, we see that the lamp stamp itself is a stylized tree. It's a picture of the tree of life. And numerous scholars have drawn this connection between the lamp stand in the tabernacle and the tree of life in the garden. It's a symbolic representation of that tree. The tree lamp is to be kept burning with the purpose as a reminder of God's presence and blessing. Still holding out the hope of the promise in the midst of God's people, the light of God, the life of God. They're all images that are impressed upon Israel in this symbolic representation of the lampstand in the tabernacle. But did you notice very interesting in Samuel, David and his line became associated with the lamp of Israel. In other words, when we read, we, we might quench the lamp of Israel. To the original reader, the connection would have been family, fairly clear. The lamp in the midst of the tabernacle is now associated with David in the midst of Jerusalem. The lamp that was in the sanctuary, that lampstand, it's now the same symbolism is placed upon David in the midst of Jerusalem. So, for instance, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 36, this is after Solomon, David's son, the heir to the throne, has sinned against the Lord. He, he, the Lord brings on him the consequence of the sin, brings on the kingdom the consequence of his sin. The kingdom's going to be divided, tribes are going to split. Yet, this is what we read from this, the word of the Lord from his prophet to Solomon's son. It says, and to his son, I will give one tribe... 
that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. You hear that language? The lamp before the Lord is the lampstand in the tabernacle, but now the lamp before the Lord is David's son in the midst of Jerusalem on the throne. You already know where we're going with this, right? So that lamp is not quenched. David will continue to have a son. We see also a Davidic dynasty directly connected to the promise of God's blessing. So the lamp in the midst of the tabernacle is now associated with David in the midst of Jerusalem, and that's directly connected to the promise of God's blessing. We see this explicitly stated in the 132nd Psalm. I'm not going to read the whole thing, although I wanted to. But I'll start in verse 1. Psalm 132 verse 1 says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Down to verse 11. This is now referring, by the way, to that covenant that the Lord made with David in 2 Samuel 7. Look what it says. It's amazing. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. So so we know, we read this, and we know the promise in 2 Samuel is in one sense to many, to David's sons, his line. And yet, we can hear that same promise and know it's really to David and his son, singular, capital S. Verse 13 goes on to tell us, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. That is Mount Zion on Jerusalem. And he continues, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. He's referring to David's reign. It's the son on the throne. It's the kingdom of God, if you will. Which is nothing short than the covenant blessing itself. God's people and God's place under God's rule. There's hope in this passage because a simple expression like the lamp of Israel reminds us of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. And as God's people are reading this throughout redemptive history, you're reminded that the loss of that dynasty would feel like a loss of that promise. Let me ask you, have you ever played with fire? Come on, y'all are Callahanian. Don't even sit here and ask me. Like, you haven't been just sitting here thinking of playing with fire the entire time in the sermon today. Uh, That's right, thank you. All right, all the kids are raising their hand. That's great. I'm going to pray tonight. All right. Let me ask you. Have you ever come up to a fire in the morning that you lit the night before and it looks dead? Nothing in it. If you just stir it up a little bit, you recognize there's enough here to start a new fire. Put a little wood on it. Blow on it. You got a new fire. Listen, you know that that's what we see in the story of the redemptive history of Israel and David's line? 
That's what we see. This almost quenched lamp all throughout redemptive history. At the end of the book of Kings, you look and there's, there's no fire. Then right as you're getting ready to walk away from Kings, you see this little ember. It's Jehoiachin. The last in the line of David being raised above all the other kings of the nation. So the lamp continues to flicker. Then we turn to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah is after the exile. Zechariah is broken into two parts. The, the first half contains the night visions of Zechariah. And each of these visions begin with Zechariah seeing something. He's a prophet again after the exile. So the exile has been ended by Cyrus who decreed that Israel should return home to the promised land to build a temple for the Lord. They build it and the people who remember the old temple are like, that's terrible. It's an awful temple. It looks gross. And they're weeping and the new people are like, that's a pretty good temple. I think we did a good job. Let's worship there. Anyways, he's prophesying in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah in verse 1 of Zechariah 4. Look what he says. Here's this night vision he gets. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me. As a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking. And there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it. One at the right of the bowl and the other is at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of it, Grace, grace to it. So listen, great mountains are often used as pictures to refer to nation and and this Zerubbabel, who, by the way, is a son of David, shall bring a capstone on top of that mountain. Verse 8. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So again, we see another ember. It's just an ember. It's not a fire. In fact, this is referred to as the day of small things, particularly because of how the people felt in the temple. The older elders remember the grandeur of the former temple, and they referred to it as the day of small things. And for those of you, he says, who have despised these small things, there's this prophetic witness of what's coming. Not Zerubbabel. But a plumb line, a son of David, who will come forth and build for God a house. 2 Samuel 7. You want to hear something crazy? This is the craziest part of all. You are that house. You know that? Like, you guys, us, we are that house. It's remarkable to know that the lamp never went out. Ever. The lamp never went out. You can follow it in Matthew 1 or Luke 3 all the way to Jesus who is indeed the son of David born in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. The true light of the world came into the world and his own did not recognize and yet who all did receive them, he gave them the right to become the children of God. 
And so, and so if this is the case, then let's follow it all the way through. The, the son of David, who has built for the Lord a house made of living stones in which God dwells, that light, that very light, dwells in us. That life dwells in us. The problem is, you and I see, think, and feel with our eyes, believing them more than we do what God's word says. Guys, we have what was promised in 2 Samuel 21. And I know you're reading it. And you didn't read any promises there. But if there's a note of hope, it was this. There's a day coming because of the lamp of Israel where it will not be war again, war again, war again. But there will be an eternal rest in the land. Friends, here's what we need to hear this morning, saints. That rest has already been initiated. It has. It abides in each one of us, even as we long for its completion and consummation, as we still live in a war-torn world. We no longer belong to it anymore. I mean, have we not been seated with Him in the heavenly places? Even at this very hour? Are we not seated with Him above every power and principality? Let me ask you, do you live your life like that? I mean, what does that even look like to live my life that I'm actually seated with Christ in the heavenly places? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like holding fast to confession in the face of death, knowing that all that your heart has ever really, truly longed for is secure in Christ Jesus. Knowing that there is nothing that you cannot, that you can lay down here right now that you will not receive back in a lion's share on the day that Jesus returns. It looks like laboring to enter that rest. There's a day coming when that light represented in the tabernacle and then referenced as a lamp of Israel will come to its consummation at the end of time when Christ returns. Anybody thinking of Revelation right now? You know we're going there, right? Revelation chapter 21 at the end. This is what John saw in his vision. What did he see? But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The Lamb is its lamp. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth each bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. By the way, when do you shut your gate? Why do you lock your doors at night? When you're threatened. But guess what? There's no threat anymore in new heavens and new earth. The gates are open, they remain open, and then it says, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, 
and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Friends, that day is quickly coming. I know, I say that every week, don't I? But, but the reality is, listen, I may be here to tell you that again next week. And I may not. You may be here next week to hear it again. Or you may not. And that may be for one of two reasons. The Lord may take either of us home or the Lord may come here. Bringing this with Him, by the way. Let's hope for the latter. But whichever it may be, hear the word of the Lord this morning. He is the light of the world. He is the true lamp who will never be quenched. And we get to share in that wonderful blessing and inheritance to be the lights of the world. As we proclaim the true lamp of Israel. And as we see His gospel go out from our mouths used by the power of His Spirit to change hearts and to build His kingdom. Would you stand with me as we close this morning, respond rightly with worship. Gracious Father, even now, there's a war within us, between the flesh and the Spirit. Lord, how we, how we long for the day. When there will be abiding and eternal rest in the land. Father, would you, would you help us to be a people that hold fast the confession. Who are willing and ready to lay down even our very lives if we might have the honor of doing so. Lord, would you prepare us to long even more for the day when all things will be made new. Help us not to lose sight. Help us not to grow weary. We trust you. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Are you looking forward to that day? Friends, let me tell you, the the invitation this morning is very clear to those who are in Christ. Do Do you have rest in the land? You have that initiated? Is there rest in your heart this morning to know that there's coming a day when you're going to be saved to sin no more? I don't know if there's anything more hopeful that the Christian can hear. One day, friends, we're not going to have to worry about this sin stuff anymore. You know that's your biggest enemy. That's your biggest problem in life. It's not who's in the White House. It's not the laws of the land. It's not how bad your college football team's going to be this year. It's your sin in your heart, your pride, your selfishness, your propensity to want to serve yourself instead of King Jesus. And friends, there will be a day where that will be no more. Over and done with. If, and if that's not a longing in your heart, like if that's, that's not a desire that's even on your radar, friends, you're not doing war with sin. Let me tell you that. Because for the one who's actually doing battle with sin, who's struggling with sin, who's fighting sin day in, day out, that, that enemy seems very mighty to you. 
It seems unconquerable. But to know the hope, to know the promise, and to be reminded what Christ has accomplished for us in the gospel, friends, that fills us with unimaginable hope. And it fills us with light. Because we're reminded that the lamp of Israel went dark on Calvary for us. The wrath of God was poured out upon His Son, Jesus, to pay for the sins that we committed. And then He brought them to life, never to be quenched, ever. And we get to live in that reality day in and day out. For the Christian, if you're struggling right now to find rest in your heart, hear that this morning. Hear that your answer is simply the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And know that there's coming a day where we'll be saved to sin no more. If you're not a Christian this morning, I, let me encourage you. Maybe you, that's, that's not something you ever even think about. You have no idea what sin is. None of this makes sense to you. Let me share really quickly the story of the gospel with you. It's this. God created this world and everything in it. Therefore, he owns it and rules over it as a good, benevolent, loving king. He created it. Therefore, he owns it. That's it. That's, that's the simple fact of the matter. It's his. He governs and decides how it runs. He made man in his image, the only creation in his image, to have dominion over this world, to rule over this world under his authority, walking in fellowship with them, connected, the joy and the presence of God, bringing honor and glory to him. But man instead rejected God's good and righteous design and created a design of their own, one that sees them as king of all creation The only problem with that is you're not worthy of such a decree. In fact, your very sin disqualifies you from ever being worthy. You've broken the king's law, and therefore you are deserving of a punishment. And the king has decided that punishment is death. It's a worthy punishment for breaking the law of a gracious, glorious king. You've earned that punishment of death. Not just physical death, by the way. Not just aging. But spiritual death, where you are no longer on your own able to have a relationship with the king who created you to have a relationship with him. So you're missing your very purpose in life. You will never feel fulfilled. You will never have rest because there's always war within your soul knowing that this is not what you were created for. But you were created for more. To bring honor and glory to a righteous king. And so that punishment of death has to be paid by someone. And it will either be paid by you as you continue to reject this gospel message. Or you can hear the good news of what Jesus has done on your behalf. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, in the likeness of men. The one who never sinned, who never earned God's punishment of death. Never earned the right to be judged for sin, and yet he willingly went to the cross and paid the punishment for sin. That means God poured out his wrath upon his own son, whom he loved from the beginning of the foundations of the earth, to pay for your rebellion. If you would but repent and turn away from your sinful lifestyle, your understanding of you being king, and turn towards Jesus as your king, and you would believe and trust in the finished work of the gospel, then today, today, you can have the lamp, the light of Christ, shine brightly in you. And you can have hope of eternal rest 
and the land. Right now, friends, outside of Christ, you don't have it. It's what keeps you awake at night. But in Christ, through Christ, and through Christ alone, there's peace and hope and light. If you don't know the Lord Jesus today, please don't leave this place without confessing your sins, having a right relationship with Him. Pastor Justin will be down front this morning. I'll be at the back of our sanctuary to welcome you and thank you for coming. Brother Bob's down here as well. We'd love the opportunity to pray with you, to share with you more about what it means to be a Christian and how today you can walk out of these doors knowing the eternal rest that's coming, having rest for your weary soul. Please, whatever you do, come to Christ today.